0: Welcome back to What's the Point? My name's Taylor Miller. And I'm Ned Marks. We hope you as our audience enjoyed our previous episode last week on the fate of humanity. And, you know, Ned and I, again, spent some time thinking about what we wanted to discuss this week, and we actually decided we wanted to discuss global warming. Excuse me. Sorry, I was just yawning. Well, then, I guess uh, guess you're not overly enthused with this, despite our previous conversation on the subject. You know, I am enthused,
1: but this is a topic that has now been discussed for years. Uh, It's gotten to the point where it's very highly politicized. It's almost incredibly trite. Um, Anytime you talk about global warming, you're bound to come across either an argument from a non-believer or... You know, trying to tread not so lightly on, um, you know, something that might damage what someone else thinks.
0: Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, global warming has been discussed ad nauseam, particularly in the last, I'd say, two to three decades. But there's actually been some news in the last uh, week or two that we wanted to bring to the attention of our listener base. Um, And we also sort of wanted to further discuss some of these uh, subtopics, uh, because we definitely think... That they're of relevance, but also um, we wanted to discuss them in a way that maybe you haven't thought of before. That's right, and and the way that we like to
1: structure our podcast is that we are really trying to bring about topics that have relevance within the news and you know the recent news at times, um, and so you know in the last week we have um, seen actually a very interesting article about. Um, a list of 13 companies, major companies, Fortune 500 companies, that have come out and said that they're going to um, pledge up to $140 billion to help combat global warming. Um, and a lot, I think, about what we have been discussing as a um, as a society, as public in the past 10, 20 years is, you know, what can we really do about this? This is a global problem. It's bigger than you and me, and it's bigger than just the USA, Um You know, is this something that we can do about?
0: You uh, you know, I definitely think that uh, things can be done, Ned, both by uh, private entities such as companies, whether they work together or unilaterally, um, and also by governments. I mean, the Kyoto Protocol um, was a perfect example of this very fact. But, you know, before we get into that, let's back up for a second. I mean, we all know that global warming, global warming and global cooling, for that matter, are trends of our planet that have been occurring for at least hundreds of thousands of years, um, and, you know, recently, uh, this warming trend that we're experiencing has obviously become a big deal, but, you know, before this, uh, we had, you know, the medieval warm period back, you know, between approximately 950 AD and 1250 to 1300 AD, and, you know, and after that, we actually had what was referred, what is referred to, uh, by climatologists as little ice age, uh, wherein, uh, average temperatures. Mainly in northern uh, Europe and the uh, Mid-Atlantic, um, rose or excuse me fell by um, you know between 0.5 and 0.6 degrees Celsius. And by the way, you know the Medieval Warm Period included average warming um, primarily in Europe of about one degree Celsius. Um, but you know the Little Ice Age um, started in about 1500 AD and ended in 1850 AD right as the Industrial Revolution was entering into full swing. And, you know, I was speaking about, to, about this to Ned, and it's an interesting coincidence um, that we've seen a huge spike in temperatures as the Little Ice Age ended. Um, and that's certainly been exacerbated or accelerated in the last 40 to 50 years. But it really brings about the question of just to what extent humans are responsible for the current warming, uh, warming trend. And to what extent it's really the uh, product of exogenous factors uh, that are just a uh, that just occur naturally on planet Earth. Yeah. And
1: obviously, you know, the Earth has been around for a long time. We've experienced a lot of different periods of cooling, a lot of different ice ages, a lot of different periods of warming. And for that fact, you know, great change in how the um, the climate has affected the matter, the life matter on this planet. And, um, you know, we've seen lots of different societies come and go, lots of different um, species come and go, and, and with that, you know, we've seen a lot of change within the environment. And, of course, lots of it and everything prior to human to civilization has been, you know, based on and caused by natural effects. Yeah. And, and the question that we ask now is, obviously, do we get to this point, point? and this is the question that's been proposed for the past 20 years, where we are no longer seeing natural effects take their natural course, where we are as humans affecting this.
0: Right. And, you know, NASA has released statistics that show uh, that up until 1950, um, you know, for the past, for the previous uh, centuries before then, um, the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere never really exceeded 300 parts per million. Um, however, since 1950, uh, we've reached levels that are closing in on 400 parts per million. And, you know, you, the average person is going to sit here and say 300 versus 400 parts per million. What's the significance? And, you know, the key to understanding that is really the percentage change, um, you know, between uh, those numbers. It's very significant. We're talking, you know, if we reach 400 parts per million, which we're um, on track to do by, I think, either 2020 or 2050, um, that will be a 25% change uh, from the centuries prior. And, right. you know, the the uh, implications could be drastic, if not dire. Right,
1: that's right. And, and you have to look at recent history and see the statistics that have come out in the past, you know, 10, 20 years. The 10 hottest years globally have all occurred since 1998. And that's a very interesting statistic. You know, obviously that's of significance. When, right. when we look at it, you know, that means that it's getting hotter as we move forward in time right now. You know, we have to question this because when was the first time that we started capturing this data? You know, it doesn't go extend back much more than 100 years probably. Um, and, you know, how much can we really... Say that this is on us. You know, is this really our fault at this point?
0: Right, and you know, it, it's clear as as Ned just alluded to, or just alluded that um, uh, global temperatures um, have been rising at an accelerating rate since the nineteen nineties. Um, you know, it's and and it's mainly, or I guess the question is, is it mainly due to you know human production and emission? of greenhouse gases such as CO2, carbon dioxide, and CH4, methane? Um, and if so, um, you know, what really, you know, what are the implications?
1: Yeah, and the only
0: way to really look at
1: it, I think, and actually get some answers here is to actually state facts. And in order to state facts, we have to say things that we know. And the first one of those is that anytime you release CO2 into the atmosphere, you create... Um, you know, a, a point in which you are building up a system that causes greenhouse gases to multiply and ultimately, um, you know, really, really increase upon itself. And these greenhouse gases, CO2 is a known greenhouse gas. It makes um, any heat energy caused, uh, you know, traveling from the sun that bounces off the earth and then bounces back out trap itself. Within our atmosphere, as opposed to other gases, which actually allow it to radiate off and then bounce away, so that the heat is no longer actually part of that atmosphere.
0: Right, and what's so dangerous about that is that the 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 trapping of of, of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere creates a you know self perpetuating feedback loop, wherein um, the heat that is trapped um, exacerbates the you know the global warming trend that we're experiencing. And as more and more of these uh, emissions are released, um, the rate at which um, negative consequences occur and the severity of them increases at a faster rate or accelerates.
1: That's right. Yeah. The second part of that fact, which Taylor has just alluded to, is that anytime time we increase greenhouse gases, and these are mostly CO2 but also methane, um, temperatures tend to follow. And We've seen very startling trends backed in science and backed in strong research that show that, you know, as we increase parts per million in CO2, we see temperatures rise. That's what's been happening, and that's what's been um, documented over the past 10 years. That's why we've seen so much, um, you know, uh, of this research show that it's continuing to get hotter, and it's not slowing down. It's actually increasing. Um, It's not really that hard of a correlation to see if you look at the numbers.
0: Right. And uh, you know, uh, the other the other issue here, um, or I, I guess the the one of the more peculiar issues um, with respect to the release of greenhouse uh, gas emissions, is that a disproportionate amount of the emissions occur from only a small group of entities. And so, for example, the United States, uh, with only you know approximately four percent of the world's population is responsible for almost a quarter of all greenhouse gas emissions. China, while it contains significantly more people, approximately 18% of the world's population, uh, releases about 30% of the world's uh, greenhouse gas emissions, largely uh, due to the burning of coal uh, for energy production. Um, And, you know, there's a list of companies as well that I want to get into later in this podcast that have had a huge effect on... um, I think the release of greenhouse gas emissions, but it's clear to me that uh, a small group, a small group of players, so to speak, have disproportionately affected um, uh, the environment um, at the cost of everyone.
1: Yeah, and that's been clear. You know, it's been a highly politicized issue, and we can go back into you know the the history of that and what we've seen from you know different sides of, of the uh, of the coin from Democrats to, to Republicans in this country and then elsewhere um, and you know no one's pointing figures at, at anyone here but you know there have been certain efforts and very strongly um, propagandist efforts to cover up and even you know negate any kind of credibility that that many of the scientists who have um, really come out in, in support of, of climate change uh, you know, are really able to, to,
0: to make known. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I spoke with my uncle who is a physicist at UC Berkeley. His name is Robert Kahn, um, about this very issue. And ultimately the problem really is it's a tragedy of the commons. And for those of you who don't know what that is, a tragedy of the commons occurs when everyone has free access to a communal resource and the tendency is for everyone to use those resources as quickly as possible for fear that someone else will exploit them before before they do. And in this case, the resource is really the common environment. And what's being exploited are... Um, it, it is what's being exploited. And the unfortunate fact is that the negative externalities produced by many of these companies that um, emit greenhouse gases and also pollute significantly um, are 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 basically the victims of them is are everyone else and there is a lack of a unified uh, regulatory body, I guess on an international level that can really uh, um, assess the costs of these negative externalities um, and tax, I guess for lack of a better way to put it, the companies that create them. So you know, it's it's definitely a sticky issue. Um, you know, Ned and I have thought about like ways that possibly we could, ways that that could be that this issue could be dealt with. But with it, you know, the limitation here is similar to the limitation of international law, uh, in that there is no regulatory body to govern the actions of people on an international scale. That's right,
1: and a major, uh, really, I think the major issue at play is that humans respond to incentives. This is a human issue. We've learned that, and in order for humans to want to change we need to see that a our actions are causing a reaction that is changing things for the worse it's going to affect us and i don't know that that actually is the case you know a lot of people who are alive today will think you know we're kicking the the, the can down the road this is something that's going to affect us when we're in 2050 or 20 or 2100 or you know years from now when our kids have to deal with it a lot of things that um, you know we've dealt with as as um, citizens of, of the U.S. in the recent past, but you know that is that is certainly a, a fact, and they think maybe hey we'll have technology that can handle that, or our Earth can handle that, or or even it's not really a thing. You know the the deniers of climate change believe that you know it's really either not an issue, um, that it's not actually happening, or that it's really just quite um, you know minimal in, in terms right. of how much the change is actually going to to affect it, but that is not the case. Um, the temperature doesn't need to change that much to make everything vastly, vastly different. And I have, um, you know, a few a few statistics here. We estimate that if the temperature changed just a mere five centigrade, which is approximately nine degrees, to um, any direction, we would see a complete change in the way that our atmosphere looks and the way that our Earth looks. So. Um, you know, you could say that if, let's, let's say that the temperature changed just a mere 5 centigrade down, 9 degrees down, so the average temperature, let's say it was 70 degrees on an average day.
0: It might help with the humidity that we're experiencing here in New York right now. It is hot, <laughs> but would you rather be buried under 800 feet of ice? Wow. You're telling me that a 5 degree centigrade change in temperature cooler would, would have that extreme of an effect?
1: So I'm going to reference my favorite blog. Wait, but why? Um, they estimate that if a five degree centigrade change cool uh, of cooling were to take place, New York City would be buried
0: under 800 meters worth of ice.
1: Can you imagine that?
0: Wow, that's that's insane. Because not only would the entire eastern seaboard of the United States be under ice, but think about how far. I wonder how far inland that would that would that would create an issue. You know. Well, think about this.
1: The tallest building in New York City is One World Trade Center. Right. That is one thousand seven hundred and seventy-six feet tall. Right. That isn't even close to what eight hundred meters is. Right. Eight hundred meters is approximately twenty-five hundred feet. Wow. So, even the tallest building in New York City would still be buried under seven hundred feet of ice.
0: So the Catskills would be the new beachfront property. <laughs> they would be. They would certainly
1: have. Uh, a, burgeoning prices to, to come back with that. Now, let's imagine that it changed in the opposite direction. Let's say that we moved, you know, and again, quoting my favorite uh, blog here, Bias uh, is a another kind of thinking blog that we take a lot of inspiration from, and so we want to very duly credit it for a lot of the research that we've done here. But an estimation is that let's say that the temperature increased 6 to 10 degrees Celsius. Um, So that is, you know, 12 to 18 degrees Fahrenheit. Correct. You know, from an average temperature of 70 degrees to either somewhere between 82 and uh, 88 degrees. That would mean that New York City would be buried under 150 meters of water. Wow. So a small change in the composition of our atmosphere, can then, you know, ultimately create this vicious cycle, um, which is something that we see on Venus, and I want to get into that in a second, that can then snowball, no pun intended, into, you know, a vastly different climate and vastly different-looking Earth than what we have today.
0: Right, it's shocking. Um, You know, like I said, most people know or have a decent idea of what... Global warming is, and that humans very likely are having a significant influence on it. But it's crazy to think that a change in temperature by only you know a few degrees centigrade has a potentially catastrophic um, result and irreparable result in terms of the well-being of our global environment.
1: Yeah, totally. But what uh, what, absolutely. Were you, what
0: were you saying then about Venus?
1: So Venus is a very similar planet to Earth. Uh, similar in size, similar similar in composition. The atmosphere is much different. Um, but what we see from Venus is basically like a living hell. You have um, cycles of... of uh, well, what you see from Venus is that rocks like... Um, are sublimated. Um, There's no oceans there. It's far too hot. Um, You know, you have temperatures that rise as high as the melting point of lead. Wow! Have you ever melted lead before? I I can't say I have. Maybe that should be on our to-do list. We'll try it. Uh, (laughs) I have a friend, I think, who could be very good at that. Um, And I I don't know how to do it. You have to get the temperature to up to the average temperature of Venus which is 864 degrees Fahrenheit, which is a pretty impressive number. I don't think I could survive that for too long. I think we would instantly burn away and die. It would not be very pretty. Um, But the difference between the Earth and Venus simply is the atmosphere. So the Earth is approximately 97 or 98, give or take, on any given day, million miles away from the sun. Venus is only about 67 million miles, so it's approximately a third of the way closer to the Sun.
0: So that's significant, but the temperature increase is completely disproportionate to the increase in distance. Yes,
1: absolutely. The The temperature increase uh, is really due to the fact that the greenhouse effect on Venus has snowballed into a point where it's out of control, it no longer has the, the ability to regulate itself, um, any new gas or any new heat that comes in is completely trapped um, by the atmosphere, and you know it really means that that Venus is is completely unlivable.
0: Right. Um, yeah, you know it's it's interesting that that you 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 mentioned this sort of reflexive loop between cause and effect, um, because I you know I read an article in the New York Times not too long ago talking about a mathematician who was using systems theory to analyze climate change in the context of global warming. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a mathematician by any means, and I couldn't tell you a lot about systems theory. But what was interesting is that he was analyzing temperature increases in a lake and how slight increases in temperature uh, allowed for the perpetuation of algae and other fungi that upon uh, permeating throughout the lake, ended up killing every other significant organism living in that system, and that brings it, you know that speaks to a greater point uh, when you extrapolate that um, when you extrapolate that system to Earth as a whole, um, and I think the key takeaway is that look temperatures could rise a few degrees and have a significant um, or a major impact on our environment, as we discussed. But it's not like those two degrees or the sources behind them, you know, namely CO two and CH four emissions, uh, can just be taken away. Uh, the pollution that humans put into the atmosphere uh, that causes global warming in a self-perpetuating feedback loop can't just be sucked back out. So there's 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 a sort of a a potential sense of permanency or point of no return that we're quickly more and more quickly getting closer towards as we continue to emit greenhouse gases.
1: Yeah, that's right. And and to to go back, I, I wanna just mention that uh, that I've now looked up the the composition of Venus's atmosphere as compared to the Earth's. Um, you know, I don't know if you have any guesses or, or uh you know understanding of what, what kind of composition Venus's atmosphere has, and maybe that's um to do with the the incredible the really incredible change uh, in in the overall temperature. So the composition of Venus's atmosphere is approximately 96% CO2. Wow. So most everything that you would breathe in if you were on Venus would be CO2. Most of the remaining 3.5% is nitrogen. There's also some sulfur and sulfuric acid, etc. The composition of Earth's atmosphere is mostly nitrogen, about 78 percent or so. About 20 to 21 percent of the uh, remaining uh, percentages is oxygen, O2, and then about 0.04 percent in total is CO2. So it looks like an incredibly small minuscule, unimportant number is actually driving this incredibly vastly changing atmosphere That we see
0: or at least the the human component of that the human component of global warming is driving this change that's right right that's right and you know it's that goes back to what i was saying which is before 1950 there had never really been more than 300 maybe 350 parts per million of co2 and ch4 in the atmosphere um and now that number is increasing incredibly quickly and if if indeed and this is a question um, at least, uh, you know, to to what degree humans are the re, are the responsible for global warming as compared to just exogenous um, factors in our environment. Um, you know, if humans are a major, are the primary or the almost complete component of of global warming, then um, we're in big trouble because the emissions that were uh, that are being released are are quickly approaching uh, points that are in percentage terms vastly larger than they ever have been.
1: That's right. Yeah. And so let's let's go back for a second and just harp on the facts and before we move forward with, um, you know, what do we do from here or, or what, you know, what's, what else has happened. The facts are that we are burning fossil fuels at an unsubstantiated level, higher than we've ever done before. Um, these fossil fuels cause greenhouse gases like CO2 and methane to be emitted into the atmosphere, which then have a direct causal correlation with increased temperatures. And these increased temperatures, or any change in temperature, causes a vast change in our atmosphere. Um, These are simply just facts, and again, we've harped on this before. And so thus, in my opinion, it is clear that humans are very much responsible for the change in the atmosphere that we see today. Would you agree?
0: Uh, You know, I I do. Um, To what degree... Um, I couldn't say with any uh, precision, but um, I would, um, I do think um, that we are responsible at least 50%, if you're going to put a number on it, for um, the current trend in global
1: warming. I do
0: think that a component of that, of it is environmental. It's sort of like the ebb and flow of temperatures in the grand scheme of the Earth's existence. Um, And we are in a period, with respect to the Earth's existence, where temperatures are increasing, but I think it's definitely being exacerbated by either a significant or a huge uh, to by a significant or a huge degree uh, by human behavior. And you know, Ned, it's 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 pretty crazy because you know I I mentioned earlier that you know countries such as the United States and China um, are disproportionately responsible for. Um, the greenhouse gas emissions that are currently in our atmosphere. But but think of this. There are, th- this is a crazy statistic. There are a mere 90 companies that are responsible for nearly two-thirds of all man-made global warming emissions between 1751 and 2010. Wow, 90 companies. Ninety.
1: Uh, in the past two hundred and fifty years, in,
0: it, it, yeah, it, it, two hundred and sixty. It's 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 it's. You know, when I first read that, I frankly didn't believe it, but it comes from a uh, from a major uh, research piece uh, that we can post. Um, you know, either on our website or provide to our listener base uh, upon request. Uh, and and you know, it's it's pretty it's pretty interesting. I mean, as you might imagine. The list of these companies is predominantly the who's who of oil and natural gas producers. Um, I can bring them up here. Uh, roughly in yeah, order you want to list them out? Yeah, I mean roughly in order not, not to point any fingers. But, <laughs> but you know roughly in order of the percent of global emissions uh, that, that, that have been produced from 1751 to 2010. Uh, in order of, of most uh, emissions to least, you have Chevron, ExxonMobil, Saudi Aramco, which is the Saudi Arabian oil company uh, that's state-owned, uh, BP. I guess if you know if, if they're not busy uh, blowing up oil rigs in the Gulf, they're busy polluting the atmosphere. Um, sorry, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> so yeah. okay, you had to. You. <laughs> uh, you have Gazprom, which is uh, uh, Russia's oh, Russia. yeah Russia's state-owned oil company. Uh, Royal Dutch Shell, the National Iranian Oil Company. Pemex, which is Mexico's uh, nationalized oil company, ConocoPhillips, uh, Petróleos de Venezuela, which is also known as Pedevesa. uh you have Coal India, Peabody Energy, you have Total, uh, which is a company in France, PetroChina, Kuwait Petroleum. I mean the list goes on, but you know the 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 point here, uh, and you know wait but why you know the uh, Ned and my favorite, you know, the favorite blog of both Ned and me, um, you know, mentions that they have, you know, not only do they have a huge sway of the inter- in within the global economy due to our dependence on oil, but due to that very dependence, there is little uh, impetus for them to change their behavior when it comes to pollution of the environment. Um, so, you know. The, you know, one of the questions that this begs is, well, if they're not going to make any significant changes, and you know, ho- hopefully one day they will, but for now, that doesn't seem to be the case. You know, what what actions can be done by other entities?
1: Right, and and I think what we're seeing is slowly over time, public perception of this issue has grown as we've not only seen generations come through because this is a multi-decade uh, issue. That's, that's gone on now. Um, new generations are coming through with new progressive ideas. Uh, and also we're seeing the actual effects of this. So back to my point about humans respond to incentives, we are seeing that there are catastrophes occurring across the globe. Um, and these are our incentives. Our incentive is to not allow these catastrophes to happen. And I wanna just bring back through a little timeline of the things that have brought us to here. So global warming is actually only a pretty new term. You know, it's really climate change. It's the change in the global climate that is actually exacerbated by the the heat being released to cause warming. But global warming was coined in 1975 by um, a man named Walsbroker. And it was really the introduction of the idea. At this point, there was very little recognition by the public. Um, You know, this was 40 years ago. And so we were not the global society that we are today. We were not the um, scientific engineers that were able to to discern all this. But we had begun discussing this idea. But it wasn't until 1989 that a real major public figure came out to first identify the threat. This was Margaret Thatcher. And she warned of a threat from CO2 emission to cause global uh, increase in temperatures. And um, that was really the first point at which the public was introduced to, you know, this is really a theme. But that was 1989, and again, humans were not really needing to respond to any incentive. Nothing was changing. Everything that they did was going to remain the same, regardless of whether or not they drove a gas-guzzling car or a Chevy Volt, just to say that as an example, even though those didn't exist at that point. <laughs> now in 1995, the IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, uh, released an assessment report. This this was the first time that we actually suggested, through a governmental um, body and initiative, that there was a discernible human influence on the Earth's climate. That was 1995, which then led to the 1997 Kyoto Protocol, the international treaty which brought together a huge number of the world's nations to
0: really agree
1: on how we're going to start trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But that was not always greeted with respect, really. It wasn't even greeted with, you know, a lot of um, need to, to change.
0: I, um, I'm trying to remember, was it, was it considered highly controversial by the public, or did the public just not really care?
1: It certainly was in this country. Um, globally, I don't know. I don't know the answer. But at the same time, we were starting to see a trend and change of global warming, global atmosphere. 1998 was the introduction of El Niño the first real major weather change documented to the public where we saw a heating current in the Pacific Ocean temperatures, which then gave rise to temperature rise in the atmosphere. Right. Now, to actually correlate that back to global warming was very difficult and thus, again, humans did not respond to incentives. We didn't believe that this was actually something caused by us. We didn't want to. and remained unchecked. In 2001, during the Bush presidency, um, the president mo- removed the United States from the Kyoto process. This was a real enforcement of the climate change denial idea. It was really it really gave the denial idea a movement backed by many of the oil companies and coal industry and, and other industries that produce a lot of these CO2 emissions, um, you know, a lot of these lobbyists would release studies and also lobby the President and the Congress to say it's really not a valid issue and it's going to only harm our economy and thus we removed ourselves.
0: Right, and politically, uh, you know, it was definitely of convenience for companies such as those in oil and gas, but I mean, you know, the, the general a uh, conservative component of our government uh, was uh, not unanimously, but mostly in support of of this removal. Yeah, that, that's
1: probably right. You know, there was there was certainly um, people in power that that were not in support of it, um, and thus we we had a lot of trouble getting anything done. Right. Um,
0: so what happened after that?
1: So then the timeline moves forward. We see books and movies come out. So really, you know, an entrance into the public realm where we start to feel a certain um, ownership of this problem. Right. In 2005 was Hurricane Katrina. And the public, first, for the first time ever, really saw the devastating effects of what what could happen. Now, hurricanes have hit New Orleans before. They're no stranger to the Gulf region. And so many of the deniers... deniers um, you know, had a real ground had real ground to stand on when they said this is just a natural part of environmental uh, seasonality and hurricanes hit here all the time. Um, but it certainly sparked a, something underneath the mass public that believed that this was really part of a, a growing issue. In 2006, all the way back in 2006, it's pretty amazing. That's the year that an Inconvenient Truth by Al Gore was released into theaters. And we really saw the debate about climate change pick up and take off. Really,
0: wow! That is crazy to think that it was it was nine years ago. Not
1: even ten years. It began to gain a lot of notoriety. Al Gore is still on the the trail today. It's. Uh, I didn't actually know that until I looked it up today. I, he, he's he's still out there when you go to com, it's all about climate change. Um, so that's, that's his main So that's, that's his
0: main, uh, that is his, his, main
1: his main initiative right now. Um, it seemed like he fell off the map after
0: that, but he really he really is out there trying to do something still to to curb the climate change. Well as well he should because what after two thousand six and, and you know, an in inconvenient truth, what you know, what happened after that?
1: I would say the next major thing the next major event that happened was in 2012 when Hurricane Sandy hit
0: New York. Right.
1: And uh, were you living here at that time?
0: I was. So it was, It was. I mean, it hit New York, it, but it really hit just a huge section of the East Coast. But right. New York definitely got at least a brunt of it.
1: Right. And, and I want to give us, you know, a little side mention to Hurricane Irene, which was the year before. It hit New York as well, but many people saw it and saw that it was really very benign, didn't really affect much of um, New York City and and anyone who lived here's life or daily life, though it most certainly did affect people more inland, and said, you know, again, this is another thing where climate change activists are being far too vigilante um, and really trying to, to make a mountain out of a molehill. But then in 2012, Hurricane Sandy hit and caused massive flooding, massive damage to the entire New York City System,
0: But really, to the tri-state... I mean, New York City, particularly, given how dense of an urban area it is, but it really hit the tri-state area and wreaked havoc on the infrastructure here. And I think, Neb, uh, what you're getting at here, and frankly, I agree with this, is that for the finally, for the first time, the deniers were a little bit more quiet than they normally would be.
1: Yeah, and we saw a great deal, really a great sense of urgency now. What we're seeing is that... In the the average water uh, the the sea level rose and caused flooding within the major subway systems in New York and many of them are still not uh, currently running at full capacity due to this they're still trying to build back up barriers and things although a lot of them have have recovered um, you know we saw we saw towns flooded we saw um, huge power plants fail we saw everything imaginable from the entirety
0: of the, the city of New York below 34th Street, go, uh, go uh, and lose power. I remember driving in that. I remember driving my father back to Battery Park City because his building somehow miraculously had power the day after the hurricane. But everything coming across the bridge from Brooklyn was completely blacked out.
1: Yeah, it was a pretty incredible sight. There's, some, there's a very famous picture on the cover of, I believe it's Time magazine, of the whole bottom half of the city. Almost completely dark, while the top half is, is completely, uh, um, I guess you could say it's it's normal. Right. Even and though it wasn't.
0: Yeah, right. And, you know, going back to what I mentioned about systems theory, you know, the fear and the legitimate concern at this point is whether this is going to become a new normal. You know, even if emissions were, let's, let's say hypothetically, uh, greenhouse gas emissions just completely stopped as of today. Has the damage that's been done already completely irreparable? Will it go away over time? Uh, You know, we don't have any precedent to really say one way or the other. That's right.
1: This is the beauty of the Earth, really. The Earth is so big, it's so unpredictable. A weather pattern can be determined by the flap of a butterfly wing. And we do believe that our actions in the current level of emissions that we've produced is going to completely change the way the atmosphere has, uh, is going to react in the next hundred years. Right. Um, but we don't know exactly.
0: Right. I mean, what, What? you know, what, you know, like we said at the beginning of this podcast, um, you know, there's exciting news that, you know, at least some major companies are trying to take action regarding this. Isn't that right, now
1: That's right. There are 13 major companies that have pledged to, um donate up to 140 billion dollars these are Fortune 500 companies these are major names brand names ones that you would know including Apple including Google including Goldman Sachs including Bank of America, Microsoft Walmart, Pepsi they're all pledging to not only donate this money but to change the way that their um, you know their, their supply chain is managed to change the way that their purchasing is managed in order to totally rethink how they want to be um, consuming energy and And perceived. perceived, Yeah, exactly.
0: And, and, you know, you see sustainability entering more and more aspects of public life, entering more and more aspects of companies that ultimately produce goods and services for, um, you know, the general public. And I I think that this trend um, isn't just a publicity stunt, at least I certainly hope it isn't. I think it really is the beginning of a new paradigm. I hope you're right. And I do believe that it is. I
1: think that, you know, now, finally, we are starting to see, as humans, we are responding to these incentives. The incentive is to live. Yeah. <laughs> and to live yeah. a life that is responsible within the environment that we are given. And to understand that we can't treat it as a dumping ground or a backyard that's you know that has a fence that someone else has to clean up.
0: A- absolutely, and, you know the the other component is the you know, overseeing change from big companies at the top, but uh, you know a huge component of environmental conservation efforts comes from grassroots movements at the bottom. That's right. And you know we would certainly love to hear from our listeners if you you know partake in any of these, um, in any in, in any of these grassroots movements, um, if you know of any. Um, you know what your thoughts are regarding this this whole subject um, in general. Uh, you know we we would certainly love to hear from you, um, and we we really do think that um, you know individuals you know as, as big of an impact as giant companies can make and as governments can make um, individuals particularly in the collective. Hold the exact same power, if not more.
1: Yeah, I believe that's right, and and I think we're seeing the rise of renewable energy. We're seeing the rise of of biomass and ethanol and, and wind power and solar power and companies that are really dedicating themselves to to selling this and to buying this. Okay. Um, and even if not, even if not, you know, let's imagine that, you know, we live in a world where we have, uh, you know, energy forever. We, well, we don't. We don't live that. We don't have that. These energy sources that we've been using up until now are not renewable. And there's a timeline, there's an expiration date on this. And at the current rate of usage, you know, we expect that we may end up running out of coal and uh, and natural gas and crude oil sometime in the next two centuries. Wow, that quickly yeah, there's, there's a lot of different, um, you know, obviously, different estimations and different changes in the way that uh, these statistics are, are, are looked at. And you know we don't know how well we can drill for all these things, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, rough estimations place crude oil as the first one to go in the next 50, 60 years, natural gas after that. And then um, coal, we actually have quite a lot more of. Um, but, uh, but either way, regardless of whether or not it's causing temperatures to to change, we won't have this source of energy in right. the future.
0: Right. So, so I mean, it sounds like renewable energy is, is is only going to become more and more prevalent and eventually will become the new normal. That's right. And we're, we're
1: seeing the rise of companies like Tesla. And I love what Tesla's doing. I think Tesla's a, a beautiful example of a company that's trying to actually do what's good for the greater good. Right. Um, and, and you know, not just selling electric cars, not just selling you know, beastly <laughs> beautiful automobiles that can go at ludicrous speed at zero to sixty in two point eight seconds. They're actually, you know, they're opening up their patents so that GM and Ford and Chrysler and Mercedes and BMW and every other company out there that's, that's manufacturing cars can get on board with this and become part of this revolution
0: right and you know it's companies like Tesla that are at the vanguard of bringing renewable energy to the forefront of our daily lives and you know well, again you know companies can certainly make a big impact but so can any other individual um, and you know you know Ned and I are staunch believers in the power that lies in any given person. And um, you know, we think that uh, the changes that will occur um, will not only be for the better, but will be done um, in, uh, you know, in combination through a combination of both people, companies, and governments., yep. so
1: yeah, And we're seeing it all kind of come to the fold right now.. Yeah. My question is, is it too late? We don't know. We don't know. We will see in the next few years. Uh, we will see how well uh, we react to this. We will see how efficiently. We will see if this change is global or if it's just due in you know our local atmosphere. But change is coming, yes. which is exciting, and change is always a part of normal life. I think it's good. I think it's good here. I would like to to continue to tout it, and I'm very excited about the fact that we are. I'm, I, you know, I. Lament the fact that we haven't done it sooner, but at least it's hum- happening right now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you guys have any any comments on, on, you know, what you think is happening or if you have any, you know, opinions that you'd like to voice, you can certainly um, touch base with us. You know, we, as we've said um, in our previous episodes as well as in this one earlier, you know, we're always um, more than happy to hear what our listener base has to say. That's right. We care a lot
1: about what you guys think. Please call us. Please write us. And please let us know how how you like this podcast.
0: Yep. And uh, stay tuned. Uh, Next week we'll have episode four for you. But until then, uh, this is What's the Point? I'm Taylor Miller.
1: And I'm Ned Marks. And thanks everyone for tuning in with us this week. And we will see you all again very soon.
0: Have a good night.